Would you be surprised to hear me say that I'm not entirely sure what to make of the resurrection accounts recorded in the Gospels? I mean, I'm not certain how we should read them. Were they, uh, were they intended as history, simply relating facts meant to be taken at face value? Like a cub reporter might when recovering his first murder? If so, they aren't very good history. The narrative details are incomplete and vary wildly from writer to writer. That something dramatic happened to the disciples following Jesus' death can't be denied. Even a thoughtful unbeliever has to be perplexed over the dramatic success of the early Christians, considering that their leader was put to a humiliating death. He was an enemy of the state. But these stories don't neatly wrap up the events, do they? The way we might expect a good factual history or even a novel. It, and it's not as though they don't have a ring of truth, of course. It's just that the truth they ring extends beyond rational comprehension. I suppose we could say that these stories are bigger than we are. So maybe they should be read more like parables, not so focused on specific historical detail per se as on revelation of larger truth. Still, they don't fit neatly into a particular category, do they? In the lesson we just heard, what seems the overriding concern for the writer is that the disciples' grasp of the truth had to be enlarged. Their old categories for understanding the way the world was organized could not contain this new information. So we're told that when Jesus stands among them, they were startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a ghost, perhaps, the writer says. Then Jesus reassures them by eating a bit of fish. I love that little detail. Part of the message the reader gleans is this. Whatever it was the disciples experienced, it was unlike anything they had known or imagined. Of course, our predispositions often prevent new information from penetrating our consciousness. It's simple human nature, as Luke tells it, the disciples tried to apply existing categories to something that was alien to them. That's why they leapt to the conclusion they were seeing a ghost. Not that this was even this was particularly plausible, but they had no other way of interpreting what they had experienced. Reading this over this week got me thinking how often new information remains unabsorbed by us because of our habituated patterns of organizing our world. Much of the time, we don't want to hear there's a new way of understanding something, do we? We're quite attached to our own biases and prejudices, our own habits and ways of thinking about things. And woe to those who shatter our comfort in these matters. I mean, that's a primary reason Jesus was put to death in the first place, right? I mean, he shattered the comfort of status quo thinking. 
But then the crucifixion didn't put an end to it. Instead, after his death, the power of his life continued as though amplified a thousandfold, rippling down through the centuries, reaching us today, when we're now the ones confronted by these perplexing, hard-to-categorize stories. In our reading and pondering, it helps to consider how rigid and compartmentalized our own thinking really is. And this is difficult because, of course, we don't like to think of ourselves as rigid and compartmentalized. We like to think of ourselves as enlightened and responsive to new information. But among our many biases is our belief that we already have the truth pretty well in hand. Now, this is a problem because as the resurrection stories indicate, the truth is very much larger than we are, and if we were just a bit smarter and less smug, we would see that we have it exactly backwards. It's not that we have the truth in hand, but that the truth has us in hand, which makes for a very different way of looking at things. Leroy Collins, who was once governor of Florida, wrote a series of reflections. He told of a day he was beachcombing with his then six-year-old granddaughter. Have you ever been to Sanibel Island off the coast of Fort Myers? If you walk on that beach, you need to be wearing shoes because it's littered with shells. The tide was going out, leaving all of those beautiful treasures that come in from the Gulf of Mexico, and he was carrying the bag in which they were collecting the shells of all shapes and colors. Suddenly, little Jane came running to him with sparkling eyes, saying, Granddaddy, look at this beautiful shell. He looked at it with some deference, he wrote, but firmly said to her, Darling, it is pretty, but don't, we don't want to keep that one. It has a hole in it. Jane was crestfallen with this assessment, but unwilling to surrender her view of reality. She argued, but granddaddy, look, look how pretty it is here and here and here. She kept pointing to all the places on the shell that were indeed pretty. Finally, she said, don't look at the hole. <laughs> Collins reported that on another walk months later, when he was alone on the beach, he thought of this episode, and it occurred to him that he had been looking at Jane's shell from the wrong end of the telescope. He was seeing only the hole. When looked at differently, something much larger loomed into view. He added, I once asked a blind man what was the greatest obstacle he felt he had to overcome. I thought he would say walking across a busy street or preparing his food, something like that. But instead, he said, my greatest problem is that everybody just thinks of me as a blind man. They may express sympathy, but it is not sympathy I want. It is understanding that I am not just a blind man. I want them to just see me. On Friday, I read a report, maybe you did too, about a 14-year-old boy who nearly lost his life after being shot at while trying to stop at the home to ask 
a home to ask for directions to school. For some reason, the homeowner seemed to think that when he knocked on her door, he wanted to rob her. The encounter began when Brennan Walker woke up late, missing the bus to school. He tried to walk the bus route, but got lost, and without a phone with a map, he resorted to the old tried-and-true method of stopping and asking for help. He chose the home because he noticed that it had a neighborhood watch sticker on a window, and he thought it would be a safe spot to stop. Unfortunately, after knocking on the door, the woman who answered started yelling at Brennan, screaming, "'Why are you trying to break into my house?' He tried to explain the situation, but a guy came out with a gun, so he ran away as the man fired off around. Luckily, he missed. But the homeowner's security system recorded the whole ordeal, including the woman exclaiming, Why did these people choose my house? Now, you already have surmised something, haven't you? You know that the 14-year-old was black and that the homeowners were white. We often get things very wrong by reading persons and events through rigid predispositions and prejudices. We do this all of the time. We structure our world according to a prescribed set of well-formed but often quite erroneous propositions. We do this with external reality, and we do it with our internal reality as well. The former prevents us from seeing others as they are. The latter prevents us from really seeing ourselves as we are. And so, the irony from Leroy Collins' story concerns this question. Which person is truly blind? The one whose eyes don't work or the one who just does not see? One of the great glories of our humanity, friends, is our capacity to learn and change. And one of our strengths is that every once in a while, the status quo of our thinking gives way to a much larger truth, a truth we may not at first have anticipated or even wanted. We come to see a larger reality. That's what truth means, after all, doesn't it? Non-concealment, the disclosure of the full and real state of affairs. I think that whenever such a breakthrough occurs, resurrection energy is at work, energy that brings the new thing out of the old, energy that brings life where only death seemed real, energy that has the power to shatter entrenched ways of thinking. Even even thinking about religion, even thinking about spiritual matters, among the reasons some of us have gathered in church this morning is due to a spiritual restlessness or a quest for meaning, salvation, hope, something that is bigger than what we already know or have. Still, we have a strong predisposition even concerning these matters. We've come full of our own opinions. We have the tendency to want to control and anticipate the larger truth we seek. 
And actually, there is a powerful tendency within all religious systems to so organize revealed truth that the largest truth becomes the enemy. What's the largest truth in our, in our home? God is love, and all people are loved equally. That's the largest truth. When we organize our religion so as to make the largest truth our enemy, hmm, this is what happens with fundamentalisms of every stripe, everywhere. Adherents come to believe they own the truth than the other way around. Then, holding their little bit in their hands, they would wield it like a weapon and watch out if you happen to be within arm's reach. Looking through the wrong end of the telescope, as it were, guarantees that we will keep our realm of truth small, neat, and tidy. This will also keep our faith small, our world small, and our hope and our love small as well. We might, say, see a ghost rather than resurrection, for instance. See only the hole in the shell. When if we opened up our view, we could see beauty everywhere. Friends, you know, like the disciples, we live our days waffling between confusion and clarity, doubt and faith. We each have our own personally designed blindness and prejudice. We have all known the agony of defeat, and dashed hopes and dreams, fears, personal corruptions, death of loved ones. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, we have found our way into this sanctuary this morning, which I'm going to tell you is not so dissimilar to standing in front of the empty tomb. And the good news, the nearly impossible news we hear in stories difficult to explain is that in our willingness to make ourselves available to the God of life, in our asking and in our listening, Jesus himself, himself, stands among us. And if we let him, with our hearts and hands held open, he will open our minds so that we might understand. That's the promise.